Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to talk about film noir, specifically the classic black and white movies from the 1940s and 50s. And so if you don't know what film noir is, it actually comes from a a French film term of uh, black cinema. And so it's usually there's a femme fatale, which means there's a female protagonist that usually is behind the scenes masterminding everything. Uh, Usually film noir is known for its very... Uh, dark and murky, but very visual shots, the use of shadows, uh, you know, Venetian blinds, things like that. And it kind of comes out of the World War II era and how, you know, people are happy to be home, but there's a darkness to that, you know, because many of the soldiers went through hell that most people could never imagine. And so coming back to this, you know, the U.S., when everyone's supposed to be very happy, it isn't necessarily very happy to try to fit into regular life. And a lot of film noir uh, talked about those returning soldiers. And so what we're going to do on this episode is go through some of my favorite film noir, hopefully If you haven't seen this, this would be a good introduction of what to check out. Um, My introduction to film noir was through a film class that I took when I was in college. And one of the movies that my professor showed us was Double Indemnity, which we will definitely cover. And from then on, I was hooked on film noir. And so uh, I'll I'll pick some of the the ones that everyone probably has seen, everyone has talked about, but then I'll get into the lesser known ones. And maybe we'll do a future mini episode of neo-noir, which which covers, you know, from the 1960s all the way to modern day. An example of neo-noir would be Chinatown. All right, so let me get into my list right now. All right, let's start with my favorite movie of this genre, and I mentioned it before, and it's Double Indemnity from 1944. Try saying Double Indemnity. It's not easy. 
In any case, the movie is amazing. It is really, really well done. This is the first movie I recommend for anyone that was trying to get into film noir. And you have three of the biggest stars of the time. You have Barbara Stanwyck playing the femme fatale. You need a femme fatale in any film noir, for the most part. You have Fred McMurray, who plays the main protagonist. And then you have McMurray's boss in the film, and that's Edward G. Robinson, best known for his gangster films from the 1930s. The great part of that about this movie, and most people know Fred McMurray, a lot of them, from his Disney movies like The Absent-Minded Professor and things like that, but they didn't know that he could play heavy roles, and he did back in the 40s. And so people that, that only know him that go back to this might not realize <laughs> what a great actor he was, and I didn't because I knew him as The Absent-Minded Professor, and so it was kind of weird at first to see him play this role. But if you don't know the plot of the story, basically Barbara Stanwyck hates her husband, who's an oil man, very wealthy. So she goes to an insurance agent, and that's Fred McMurray, to basically renew her husband's um, automobile policy. But she decides to take out a double indemnity clause. So if he gets in an accident that happens to be on a train, she gets double the money. And you can see where this is going. And so one of the common themes in most film noir is that the femme fatale, in this case Stanwyck, usually seduces the main protagonist, that being McMurray. He can't help but fall for her charms, but there's always some evil in the background. And of course, this is what's going on. Edward G. Robinson kind of sees what's going on, but he, he likes Fred McMurray so much that he doesn't really get involved until the end. In any case, this is the one to start with, and there are many interesting things. So one, this is directed by Billy Wilder, who is an amazing director. He directed Some Like It Hot and many, many other terrific films. And this was also worked on um, by Raymond Chandler. And so uh, Wilder's usual skip, <laughs> script collaborator, uh, Charles Brackett, uh, didn't really want to do the story. So then he, uh, Wilder hired, hired Raymond Chandler, who is best known for writing The Maltese Falcon and films like that. All right, the next movie is Gilda from 1946. So this is a stellar film noir starring the stunningly beautiful Rita Hayworth. Before her breakout role in Gilda, Hayworth kind of starred in musicals and was best known as one of the top pinup girls of the World War II era. And of course, if you've seen The Shawshank Redemption, you'll notice a Rita Hayworth poster in Andy Dufresne's cell. Of course, Andy Dufresne was Tim Robbins. Gilda also stars Glenn Ford, who was one of my favorite classic actors, and I first knew Glenn Ford from the original Superman, as he plays the original Pa Kent for Christopher Reeve's character. Alright, so the plot of Gilda is that Johnny, played by Glenn Ford, is a degenerate gambler who ends up getting caught cheating at blackjack by a casino owner. Johnny ends up charming the casino owner and is hired by him. However, Johnny ends up falling for the casino's owner's beautiful wife, Gilda, who's got to play the femme fatale, and the fireworks begin. Again, you're, you're going to go... There are some very common themes here, and, and you'll see like Rita Hayworth smoking a cigarette and just the way she looks and her mannerisms. This is prime film noir. This should be definitely right after you see Double Indemnity. All right, next is The Killers from 1946. This stars Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, and Edmund O'Brien. Edmund O'Brien is a lot of film noir, which we'll get into a little bit later. The movie is notable for being Lancaster's first movie, and it's actually Ava Gardner's breakout role, and the movie is based on a short story written by Ernest Hemingway. And actually, the, the 
really the film itself only covers the few pages that Hemingway wrote, which is kind of interesting. Ava Gardner, much like Rita Hayworth, is stunningly beautiful, and, you know, we well, can't ask Frank Sinatra anymore, but I don't think he ever, according to what I read, he never got over uh, losing Ava Gardner, though she married Mickey Rooney for some reason. Winley and I talked about this when we have our movie Fridays. We don't get how <laughs> Ava Gardner would fall for Mickey Rooney, but hey, I don't know. People see something in somebody. Anyway, the movie itself focuses on the impending doom of the Swede, played by Burt Lancaster, and two hitmen are hired to knock him off. So you know what's happening from the very beginning. So the film is told through flashbacks, which is somewhat cliche now, but at the time, this wasn't really widely used. And Ava Gardner plays Kitty Collins, who is perfect as the femme fatale. Next is Out of the Past from 1947. This stars Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, and Kirk Douglas. Many film historians consider this one of the finest film noirs ever made. So again, like uh, The Killers, this film is told in flashbacks, which I get, some people dislike, but I think it really works well for the film. And so the plot revolves around Jeff, played by Robert Mitchum, who was once a private investigator but gets wrap up in, wrapped up into a complicated case involving a woman, played by Greer, and $40,000, which leads to Jeff getting out of business and running a gas station. However, his past, get it, out of the past, catches up with them and he's sucked back into the seedy underworld of murder and corruption. Now, Mitchum was supposedly widely regarded as a womanizer. However, Jane Greer, Greer said he acted more like a big brother to her. So, which kind of makes sense because, you know, uh, it was her... Well, it doesn't make sense, but Jane Greer, this was her first lead role. And so I think Robert Mitchum took a liking to her. And most of the uh, film was shot in a few locations in California. Uh, one Lake Tahoe, San Francisco, Los Angeles. There are scenes shot in Reno, Mexico City, and Acapulco. But again, you have Mitchum and you have Kirk Douglas in this film, and Kirk Douglas in one of his early roles. It's really, really well done. Next is The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946. And again, this is another widely regarded um, as one of the best film noirs ever made. And, and it's often touted. You hear that. I mean, it's almost cliche now. You hear The Postman Always Rings Twice. It's uh, in, the, in people's vernacular now. But Lana Turner... This made her. This She's absolutely stunning and plays an excellent femme fatale. And John Garfield is equally as stellar as her love interest. Now, a lot of people may know that this was remade in 1981 with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. However, I definitely prefer the original version from 1946 over that version. However, people that like it hot and steamy and more up to date with a lot more sex scenes, you will enjoy 1981 better. Everything is basically hinted at in a 1946 version. Again, today the story would be kind of cliche, but for me that doesn't detract from the film, and I think that's why I enjoy uh, these older films more. I'm not as jaded when it comes to, hey, I've seen it all, it doesn't matter. You have to put your mind's hand as, you know, back into when this was made, this was probably relatively groundbreaking. Anyway, John Garfield plays a drifter who stops at a roadside diner that is owned by Lana Turner and her husband, played by Cecil Kellaway. It's an odd marriage because Kellaway is much, much older than Turner, and it's obvious that she no longer loves him. I'm not sure if she ever did. Garfield takes a job at the diner, and as you might have guessed, a, mu a mutual attraction develops between Garfield and Turner. And since this, this is film noir, you can kind of guess where this plot is headed. Uh, it is interesting, I discovered that uh, the director of this film decided to have Lana Turner wear white the whole film to give her a softer appearance, which actually plays into it, because if she was wearing black all the time or something, you might think of her as evil. 
but you know the, the the charm of femme fatale is they can't come off as evil because if they do it'll give away the, the plot but if you've seen enough of these movies you kind of can expect what's going to happen but that doesn't detract from this film and definitely check out the version from 1946 all right next is the third man from i believe 1949 but maybe it was released in the in the u.s in 1950 in any case um, it doesn't really matter because it's the third man. So see this version of it. Uh, but it's very good, very complicated though. It stars Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, and Trevor Howard. It seemed like all of Orson Welles' movies are a bit complex. So that's probably why the third man is, is really no different. And the interesting part about the movie, or for fans of Wells, is that you really don't see his character, his character's name Harry Lime, until halfway through the film. And so the quick plot is, it involves a fictional writer, or a fiction writer, uh, played by Joseph Cotton, who travels to Vienna to investigate the death of his friend Harry Lime. Now, fans of old-time radio will be happy to know that there's a prequel adaptation entitled The, the Adventures of Harry Lime, and it aired as a radio program in the early 1950s, after this film came out. And Orson Welles reprised his role of Harry Lime on the show. And if you also enjoy old-time radio, you'll, you'll be happy to know that Orson Welles was the original Shadow back in the 1930s. And he had a perfect voice for radio. Um, but yeah, you know, this is after uh, Citizen King came out. And by then, his everyone knew how brilliant Orson Welles was. But he was extremely difficult, extremely temperamental. And uh, the Hearst, <laughs> Randolph, William Randolph Hearst, kind of blackballed wells in hollywood and he never came out of it after that i think citizen kane was his peak though he made some amazing movies uh, others that we will talk about later next this is a tricky one now the ones i gave you before are definitely known as film noir now there are films that kind of have a crossover appeal some have a detective story to it some have a suspense story to it so they're not always considered they're not lumped into the film noir category but in this case i'm going to include in the next two uh which definitely lean towards film noir but they have other tendencies as well and so this one is one of my favorite movies ever and that's the maltese falcon from 1941 this is definitely the more detective side of film noir and it's probably my favorite humphrey bogart movie that though Casablanca isn't far behind and I love old detective movies and I really enjoy the the hard-boiled private investigator characters like Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe and I think the appeal of Bogart in this film is that he really isn't that charming which is kind of unique you know most private investigator characters have sort of a rough exterior but they could still be charming when the situation called for it like James Garner in the Rockford Files or Tom Selleck in Magnum P.I. they come to mind as likable but tough as private investigators the cast in this is really top-notch for the Maltese Falcon, and Mary Astor plays a terrific femme fatale. Peter Lorre uh, plays the weasel role, which he always seemed to fit his persona. Reek, reek. And Sidney Greenstreet is excellent as the sinister fat man. I also enjoy the film that, you know, because it took place, supposedly, in San Francisco, though I don't think many of the shots were actually filmed in San Francisco. And so I have a special edition DVD which includes the two previous adaptations of the film from 1931 and a version called Satan Metal Lady from 1936, which actually starred Betty Davis and Warren William in the Bogart character. Next, this is one where it's more of a suspense than quote-unquote film noir, but it definitely has film noir tendencies. 
And it was in a magazine of for Life, Life magazine, that included some, this as one of their top film noir. And I tend to agree with it, so I'm going to include it in Shadow of a Doubt from 1943. Of course, this is a fabulous early Hitchcock film, which starred Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the movie initially appealed to me as the movie takes place in Santa Rosa, which is about 50 miles north of San Francisco. The plot revolves around Charlotte, played by Teresa Wright, and her beloved uncle, uh, Uncle Charlie, played by Joseph Cotton. Now, Charlotte is nicknamed Charlie after her uncle. Uncle Charlie comes to visit with Charlotte's family, and however, Charlotte begins to discover that there are things about her uncle that are troubling, and he's probably not the wonderful person he claims to be. And of course, like all Hitchcock movies, things are never what they seem, and you'll be on the edge of your seat the entire film. This is... I've heard people that say that this is their favorite Hitchcock movie, and then you have people like my dad, nothing against you, Dad, because I know you listen, uh, who doesn't like this film at all. However, uh, in this case, ignore my father. See this movie. This is really well done. My mom, on the other hand, does like this film, so we're going to lean towards my mom on this one. Next is Laura from 1944. This stars Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, and Vincent Price. The cast is absolutely stellar, and Gene Tierney is stunningly beautiful in her role as Laura, and you'll notice that most of the femme fatales, well, I guess all of the femme fatales, that's a common theme. You have to be a good actress, but you also have to be beautiful. And like a lot of film noir movies, they almost always have a convoluted plot, and they take interesting twists, and Laura is no different. So the plot goes, Dana Andrews is a police detective who is investigating the murder of Laura, and she's a successful advertising executive. And throughout his investigation, Andrew run, Andrews runs across many unique characters like Vincent Price, who plays Laura's mother money-grubbing fiancé. Clifton Webb is a well-known newspaper columnist who mentored Laura and gave her her start in advertising. And to complicate matters even further, Laura Andrew starts to fall in love with Laura. However, she's dead, right? How could he possibly fall in love with Laura? Well, you'll just have to watch the movie to understand. All right, next is Bildred Pierce from 1945. Now, I'm a sucker for Joan Crawford movies, and while I don't own all of her movies, I constantly scan the you know Turner Classic movie schedule for the ones I haven't seen. Joan Crawford was in a ton of great movies, but Mildred Pierce is, is one of her best, and she actually won an Oscar for Best Actress in her role as Mildred. Now, this definitely has film noir tendencies, but it's kind of generally regarded simply as a drama, though I'm happy to give it a film noir tag. And so the plot is that Crawford plays a single mother who works her way up to be a very successful businesswoman. However, she never seems to be able to please her spoiled daughter who is constantly getting into trouble. She's played by Anne Blythe. And that's where the drama film noir is centered upon. So I won't get into it. You just need to see it. Joan Crawford, though she can sometimes overact, and that's part of the you know the era, uh, she's brilliant in it. And in addition to Crawford and Blythe, Eve Arden, who is our Miss Brooks way back when, uh, and Jack Carson are, is in it, and Zachary Scott, they're all excellent. And they all have really strong supporting roles. And uh, if you've seen this, you may have also seen the 2011 miniseries with Kate Winslet. But definitely check out the original film because it's really, really well done. Next is Touch of Evil from 1958. Now I wonder, well, one of my favorite bands of all time is Judas Priest and they had a song called Touch of Evil on their Painkiller album and I wonder if that was directly inspired by this film. In any case, you know, by design, film noir is supposed to be dark and none be none no film may be any darker than Touch of Evil and it's directed by Orson Welles. Even today the movie is pretty disturbing and it's definitely ahead of its time considering that it was released in 1958. 
The cast is terrific. Wells, Charlton Heston, Janet Lee, Marlene Dietrich, all really, really good. The plot involves Charlton Heston, who works for the Mexican government as a drug enforcement agent. He and Janet Lee are newlyweds who get caught in a web of corruption and murder involving the police captain played by Orson Welles. There are so many twists and turns in this movie, I'm not going to try to describe it, you just have to see it. Now, there are three different versions of this movie, all of which I own in my deluxe version of the DVD. And Welles, as usual, had creative differences with the movie producers about how the movie should be edited. The original 1958 release is actually 95 minutes long, but in 1978, an alternate version was, was released, and that is 108 minutes. Then the restored version, the restored cut, and in my opinion, the best version, is 112 minutes. And then in 1988, a restored version based on Wells' notes and memos he sent to Universal Studios, uh, how he envisioned the film, that's the one that is the restored cut. So that's the one you should probably watch. Um, but in any case, that fills out all the things that are left out uh, in the original 1958 release. But in any case, just check out the movie. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, next is The Big Sleep from 1946. And I mentioned before, I love Humphrey Bogart movies and especially love classic detective stories. But with The Big Sleep, you get both of these qualities and Lauren Bacall. So it's kind of a perfect movie recipe for me. And of course, Lauren Bacall was married to Humphrey Bogart and they starred in many films together. A lot of film buffs and historians have complained that the plot is so convoluted and I'm not going to disagree. People that have watched this over and over and countless times have a hard time telling you what the you know what's going on in the movie. However, just watching Bogart and Bacall on screen, they had a chemistry that they shared that is undeniable, and that to me makes up for you know the confusing plot. If anything, because the story is so much going on, it makes repeated viewing that much better. So don't let the weird plot take away from your enjoyment of the film. The film is still enjoyable, and you do figure it out at the end, but. Getting up to that point, don't try to figure it out. All right, next we're going to go with another quote-unquote big movie, and this is The Big Heat from 1953. Terrific film noir, really dark, starring Glenn Ford, Gloria Graham, and Lee Marvin in one of his early roles. The dark tone of the film is typical because it's also directed by Fritz Lang, and the performances of the aforementioned actors are terrific, especially Lee Marvin, who is just ruthless as the second-in-command gangster and the plot centers on a homicide detective played by Glenn Ford who decides to go after the mob after the murder of his wife. Again, there are there are many painful scenes to watch and even though it was in the 50s and even though it's in black and white, it is still very disturbing to watch. All right, next is a lesser known film noir from 1942 called The Glass Key and this is the one I was hoping would be released on DVD and finally it was on a Turner Classic movie set called Dark Crimes. But I first saw this at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto uh, many, many years ago. So this, the version of the film is, is the second to be released in seven years, this, this particular version. It stars Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, Brian Donlevy, and William Bendix, and it's based on a Dashiell Hammett novel. Now, Veronica Lake is definitely known for her stunningly long blonde hair, but she was very tiny, so... It's kind of hard seeing her in the you know the femme fatale role, but she pulls it off really well. And the story is a bit convoluted, like most film noir. But once you start watching the movie, everything kind of falls into place. And again, the acting is fabulous. And I often often think of this movie when I want to watch film noir. So definitely, if you if you're a aficionado of film noir, you've probably seen the ones I've mentioned already, but you may not have seen The Glass Key. And so I really recommend seeing The Glass Key. 
Next is another movie with Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd and William Bendix called The Blue Dahlia from 1946. Interestingly enough, The Black Dahlia Murder happened a year later. But this is a great film noir. Not quite as good as The Glass Key, but really well done. And uh, Ladd returns playing, you know, he's a returning war veteran. Uh, I mentioned that before, that's a common theme. He discovers that his wife has been cheating on him while overseas. And so while she's on a drinking binge, their young son is found dead due to her negligence. And so in a fit of rage, he almost kills her, but he leaves the house. But when he returns, he finds her dead. And now he's the main suspect of her murder. And so, again, if that doesn't pull you in, it's a really intriguing plot. So definitely check this out. The acting is really well done. I guess I'm on an Alan Ladd trip here, but we're going to go with yet another, and that is Appointment with Danger from 1951. This stars, again, Alan Ladd and Phyllis Stewart. The film is a bit unique for the genre as the protagonist isn't a gangster or even a traditional cop, but he's a postal inspector. (laughs) Before you think this movie is about stealing mail, it's really about Ladd trying to apprehend two criminals who murdered another inspector. And though I could definitely see kind of a comedy sometime in the future with Kevin James as a postal inspector, I think Mall Cop wasn't too far off there. Next is The Asphalt Jungle from 1950. This is a really well-done film noir starring Sterling Hayden, Gene Hagen, Sam Jaffe, Louis Calhoun, and James Whitmore. Now, if you look at the poster, you will see Marilyn Monroe, and she does have a small role in the film, but unless you're really looking out for her, you'll likely miss her appearance. And that's what makes the movie posters that they advertised this for so, you know, appealing. And it was likely created when Monroe started to gain some fame. But don't go into this movie thinking you're going to see a lot of her because you really aren't. Anyway, the plot involves a group of men who plan on a jewel heist worth over a million dollars. Now, keep in mind, this is 1950. However, things don't go as planned. And when the whole plan goes to hell, chaos ensues for the entire gang. And very typical of film noir and botched heist movies. Next is The Big Combo from 1955. A lot of, a lot of film noir stars that have the title <laughs> Big in it. Anyway, this stars Cornell Wilde, Richard Conte, Brian Donlevy, and Gene Wallace. So the movie uh, film production DVD company, All of Films, released this movie on DVD. And it's, to me, one of the top you know video companies out there. Second only to Criterion. Shout Factory is also very good. But if you want classic films, go to Criterion first, then All of Films. Anyway, the plot, uh, Cornell Wilde plays a police detective trying to put a mob boss away, and that's played by Richard Conti. However, Wilde's superiors have ordered him to stop with the investigation. And obviously, this does not please Wilde, who decides to pursue Conti's girlfriend for information, and you can kind of see where this one's going. Anyway, definitely check out The Bing Combo. This is one of the lesser-known films, but definitely worth your time. Next is Cry Danger from 1951 and stars Dick Powell and Rhonda Fleming. Powell plays Rocky Malloy, a man falsely accused of murder he didn't commit and is sentenced to life in prison. He is eventually released five years later when a witness comes forward and provides an alibi for Rocky. But as it turns out, the alibi wasn't legit, and the quote-unquote witness really wanted Rocky out of jail to share in the money to share in the money that Rocky supposedly had from the robbery that left a person dead and Rocky was convicted of killing. Confused and convoluted? Of course, but it makes for a cool premise, and Dick Powell is always very good in these types of movies, though he was best known for his musicals, interestingly enough. However, he played a really fun uh, private detective named Richard Diamond in old-time radio. Anyway, check out Cry Danger. I probably didn't do a good job explaining the plot, but... 
don't mind me, just go see the film. Next up is The Dark Corner from 1946, and it stars Lucille Ball. Yes, the same Lucille Ball that is famous for I Love Lucy. The movie also stars Clifton Webb, William Bendix, and Mark Stevens. So fans of Lucille Ball might know her only, uh, you know, as the iconic, you know, Lucy and I Love Lucy. But and they might be shocked to to know that she was in many non-comedic roles prior to her breakout role as Lucy. But in the dark corner, Ball plays a secretary for a private investigator, and that's Mark Stevens. And Stevens is being framed for murder, and the only person that believes the story, of course, is Lucille Ball. And she does everything she can possibly do to clear his name. So, yes, it'll be weird for you to see Lucy <laughs> in kind of a... She's, she's not a femme fatale, but she's definitely the only person that can help in this role. And people forget how beautiful she was before... You know, she was Lucy on the TV show, but she really was like kind of almost a pinup model back in the 40s. Next is The Dark Mirror from 1946, and I first saw this, like many other movies, for the first time at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, California, and I was on the edge of my seat with this thrilling plot because it really is kind of unexpected. So the film is kind of like a psychological film noir thriller starring Olivia de Havilland and Lou Ayers. De Havilland actually plays a dual role as twin sisters, one being loving and calm while the other one is being, you know, emotionally disturbed. <laughs> so when a doctor is killed after seeing one of the sisters, the investigating detectives has, have no clue which sister to suspect. And so you kind of go in this back and forth, which one's which. Of course, they look exactly the same because they're played by the same person. So that just kind of makes it all that more confusing, but all that more fun. Next is Dark Passage from 1947, and again, this stars Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. This is the third of four movies the pair starred in. And I always enjoyed this movie because it was filmed in San Francisco, which is, of course, not far from where I live and where I grew up. The quick plot involves Bogart, who was convicted of murdering his wife and breaks out of prison in order to prove that he wasn't the murderer. Bacall meets Bogart by chance after he breaks out of prison and decides to help him to prove his innocence because, of course, what else is she going to do? But yes, the chemistry, as always, is undeniable when Bogart and Bacall are together, and this is just yet another example, but the, one of the lesser-known films because most people know The Big Sleep and To Have and Have Not, and there's one other one that is not coming to me now, but yes, this is one of the, oh, he, they're in uh, Key Largo. So there you go. So this is a good film noir. You should definitely check out Dark Passage. Next is another Humphrey Bogart movie, but it does not have Lauren Bacall, though it has someone that kind of looks very similar to her. And it's Dead Reckoning from 1947. And instead of Bacall, you get Elizabeth Scott. So I always found it interesting that Scott was cast in this movie because she does look almost exactly like Bogart's real real wife, and that was Lauren Bacall. In addition, Scott also has a deep, smoky voice, which is very reminiscent to Lauren Bacall. Maybe she was out doing other things at the time. Anyway, the plot is uh, told in flashbacks, which seems to also be kind of a theme with film noir. So Bogart, um, he, he decides to go AWOL from his paratrooper unit instead of staying and receiving the Distinguished Service Cross. So the reason for going AWOL is due, due to Bogart's buddy being found dead before receiving his Medal of Honor award, and Bogart wants to find out why. So as it turns out, Bogart's buddy joined the military under a different name in order to avoid a past murder charge. The rest of the movie is about Bogart trying to learn about his friend and why he's killed. So again, this isn't the first I would I would go to for Bogart regarding film noir, but this is, again, definitely worth checking out. And I enjoyed it, even though the ending is definitely not what you would expect. Next is a B-movie, but actually one of the better-known film noirs there is. 
uh, and definitely worth checking out. And it was actually remade at one point too. And that is DOA from 1950. This was shot in San Francisco for real. It's not just on a, on a set. And I always like that because, of course, I grew up in the Bay Area. But Edmund O'Brien is terrific as the lead character who is trying to discover why he was poisoned and who did it. So the movie is really fast-paced, 83 minutes, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. So it's really kind of... You kind of know the outcome, but you, you're you're with him trying to discover who gave him the poison. Now, the movie, as I mentioned, was remade in 1988 with Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. However, in my opinion, the original is superior, and you would be best to stick with the Edmund O'Brien version. Regardless, you need to see this movie, and it's not that hard to... Uh to check out. All right, next is The File on Thelma Jordan from 1950. This is starring Barbara Stanwyck, who of course was in my favorite film noir movie, Double Indemnity. And also this movie stars Wendell Corey. And so much like Joan Crawford, as I mentioned before, I also find myself watching any movie with Stanwyck in it. She's usually pretty excellent in anything she does. In this particular movie, The File on Thelma Jordan, um, Stanwyck plays kind of the prototypical femme fatale. And of course, she just seduces a married assistant district attorney named Cleve, and that, that's played by Wendell Corey. Uh, Cleve can't you know, help himself around Thelma, even though she is accused of killing her rich aunt. Now, he has to figure out and, and decide if he believes Thelma is innocent or guilty, and that is always one of the... The crux of, of most film noirs, do you trust the femme fatale or not? Because you never know which way it's going to go. This is one of my favorites that most people haven't heard of, and it's called Act of Violence from 1948, and it's terrific. It stars Van Heflin, Robert Ryan, and Janet Lee. This is, of course, way before Janet Lee was in Psycho. And so, I again, I first saw this at a film noir festival that was held at the Stanford Theater. Definitely, if you're ever in the Bay Area and you're in Powell, near Palo Alto, California, um, definitely check out the Stanford Theater on University Avenue. The movie is based on the story of two men who were in the military together during World War II. So Heflin was the commanding officer of a squad that was captured by a German uh, by the German military, and, and they were held in a POW camp. Heflin made it out of the camp alive during a daring escape, but the majority of his squad were killed by the guards of the camp. However, his once good friend, played by Robert Ryan, also survived and still holds Heflin accountable for the massacre of the squad. Ryan discovers when Hef where Heflin and his family are living in California, and he's hell-bent on killing Heflin. So it makes a very interesting, almost like a stalking story, and you almost... You don't know how to feel during the movie, and Robert Ryan is perfect as the villain. But is he really the villain? That's the key, so you're going to have to check out this movie. Act of Violence. Next is called Northside 777 from 1948. And what's interesting about this one is that it stars James Stewart, who is always known as kind of the good guy role, or he was in a Western or something like that. You don't really see him playing something in a film noir movie, but that's how good of an actor he is. He can play any role. So what's cool also about this movie, it's kind of shot in a documentary style. And so in addition to James Stewart, you also get Richard Conte, who was in many film noirs, and Lee J. Cobb. Stewart plays a newspaper reporter who was assigned to investigate the claim of a man in prison who was charged with murder he says he didn't commit, like they all do. <laughs> the mother of the inmate puts up a $5,000 reward for anyone with information about who the real killer is. So once Stewart starts investigating, he starts peeling away the layers that could shake up the town and the illegal underworld. Definitely check it out. Call, call Northside 777. Next is The Narrow Margin from 1952, and it's kind of similar to DOA in the sense of it's kind of a B picture that not many people know about. 
I actually heard about it because of a film noir box set I bought from Warner Brothers. Good job, Warner Brothers. And I was really pleasantly surprised by the unique plot and brisk pace of the movie. It's only 71 minutes, so it, it flies by, so nothing is wasted. And the movie was actually remade in 1990 with Gene Hackman and Ann Archer. The quick plot involves a police detective who fends off mob hitmen that are trying to kill a gangster's widow before she can testify against the mob in court. Yes, it's been there, done that, but this is a really well done film, so check out The Narrow Margin. Alright, next up is Scarlet Street from 1945. I love Edward G. Robinson movies, and Scarlet Street is a cool film noir directed by Fritz Lang. The movie's a bit different for Robinson as he doesn't play his normal gangster role. His, char his character is actually a shy and reserved painter, an, an artist, not a house painter, who ends up being seduced by Joan Bennett. Interestingly enough, uh, Edward G. Robinson was a painter in real life. Joan Bennett just looks amazing in this movie, by the way. So very similar to Ava Gardner. The problem is that Bennett is using Edward G. Robinson for his money. However, Robins is so, Robinson is so enamored with Bennett that he just doesn't realize what she's up to, and soon he gets himself into many dangerous predicaments. She's the epitome of a femme fatale in this one. Some fun trivia? Again, I mentioned Robinson was an excellent painter in real life. Sometimes art imitates life. Yes, that pun was intended. Alright, next is The Woman in the Window from 1944, and it starred uh, Edward G. Robinson and Joan Bennett, and is directed by Fritz Lang. Again, this was before Scarlet Street, so I think due to the success and the chemistry of Bennett and Robinson, and of course Fritz Lang, I think they decided to then join, join together to do Scarlet Street. But first, there was this movie, and that's The Woman in the Window. So again, Bennett plays the femme fatale, in which Edward G. Robinson becomes enamored with her after seeing her oil patriot, portrait, oil patriot, <laughs> I was trying to say oil painting. Oil portrait in a store window. So he then meets Bennett and has drinks with her. When the two go back to her home, her boyfriend shows up. And if you watch enough film noir movies, you probably know where this one's headed. And if not, be sure to check it out. Alright, next up is Where the Sidewalk Ends from 1950. Now, this should not be confused with the famous Shel Silverstein book of poems, which has the same name. This, of course, is a film noir, again from 1950s, that stars Dana Andrews and the always beautiful Jean Tierney. Now, the two, as I mentioned before, start in the 1944 film, Laura. Carl Malden is also in the film, and Otto Preminger is the director. Now, the plot is Andrew, Andrews plays a police detective who always seems to have a chip on his shoulder due to his father being a lifelong criminal. He takes his anger out on the suspects he investigates. However, the powers that be in the police force are less than pleased with his strong-arm tactics. However, one night, he accidentally kills one of the suspects he's investigating and dumps the body. And the rest of the film involves Andrews trying to beat the rap. All right, to wrap this up, there are three more movies that I do not own. Now, all the movies I mentioned I do own, they're in my collection. That's why I brought them up first. But these next you should see because they're all really well-done film noir. I just haven't got around to buying them yet, but I have seen all three. All right, let's go in order chronologically. Uh, the first one from 1950 is In a Lonely Place, which stars Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. So basically this one, it's really depressing. <laughs> Bogart plays a washed-up... Uh, writer and he just it's it's I, I don't remember much of it. I just remember it's very depressing. It's not your typical. I like when Bogart's more of a kind of a gumshoe or something like that. You know, he's a private detective, and this one is not that at all. He's just he's kind of miserable the whole time. That being said, his performance is really well done. He kind of plays an alcoholic, and Gloria Graham is always kind of you know she always plays that femme fatale, but she's always uh, troubled in her own way. All right, the next one. 
And this was the one that really kind of broke Marilyn Monroe, and that is 1953's Niagara with her and Joseph Cotton. And she plays the femme fatale. Um, you know, she's with her husband, uh, played by Cotton, but um, she's just kind of... She really has a breakout role. She's not kind of the stereotypical blonde she actually has some depth in this one and for those that only know her for like some like it hot and movies like that if you want to see her with a little bit more depth niagara is really well done and the last one which is super creepy and probably a precursor to cape fair is 1955's the night of the hunter with robert mitchum he is super creepy. He is just like Max Cady, uh, which will come out a few years later. I could actually, you know, Cape Fear's borderline film noir too, though it's kind of bordered on suspense. But I think people forget how great of an actor Robert Mitchum was. He had a lot of off-screen issues with drug use and whatnot, which kind of tarnished his career back then. Today would be not a big deal at all. But anyway, that's all. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Film Noir. Again, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it. I think if you're into film and you're into movies of the 40s and the 50s, it's a great genre to check out. And as you can tell, there's a wealth of riches to discover. All right, until next week, this is Brian signing off. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world, and it's my number one podcast, signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said, my second favorite podcast is, it doesn't matter, the rest suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault, featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Freaker. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs>